It's time for Dr. Laura. I swear she's not gonna bore ya. For sexy advice, you don't have to think twice. Just say you're asking for a friend. Welcome to Asking for a Friend podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Laura McGuire, an intersectional queer sexologist and doula. Each month, we sit down with a special guest for a thought-provoking conversation on how our sexuality, gender, race, faith, and ability shape our sexual experiences and identities as queer people. Welcome to Asking for a Friend. I'm your host, Dr. Laura McGuire, and today we are talking to Amy the Doula. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to have you share a bit about your work, what you do, as well as what makes you fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. I'm like so excited to be here and have this conversation with you today. Um, you want me to tell a little bit about myself? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so I live in Ontario, Canada. I live with my family, which consists of my partner and my three-year-old son. Um, I got into birth work when my son was probably around six months old. And through my journey, I have been able to support a ton of people that are um, disabled or chronically ill um, through their journey. And I also um, have gotten gotten into educating and writing. And um, a lot of my work is based off of my experiences as a queer, disabled, polyamorous, sex positive, uh, non-binary person. That sounds like a lot of incredible work. And you used a lot of different terms. I know our listeners are going to want to explore. So just starting off, like the title, Amy, the doula, how do you define being a doula for yourself? Um, I know she also used the word birth worker because I know there's there's a lot of mm, a lot of different views on what the word doula means or how it should be used. Um, so I'm curious, yeah, like what does that whole concept mean to you? And you said you got into it when your child was six months old. What what was going on then that made you say, I want to do this? The word doula is an interesting word. I think um, the history of it is, you know, it, it is problematic. It's there's a lot of um really cool history behind the word doula. And I know that for many, it's it's becoming kind of redefined as more as a support person. Um, when I use the term birth worker, I say it in a very general term. And what I mean is that I don't only support people through birth. I support people through many different journeys um, that looks like loss support, abortion support, fertility support, postpartum. Um, And I think that the reason that ultimately I got into this work was when I was pregnant, I just saw all of these gaps 
and so many people just falling through them and thinking that that was their only way. And I was like, this experience could have been so different for me. And so it's so important for me when I'm giving support that I remind people, even if you you're in a situation where you have to trust doctors and medical professionals, you also still have a say and a choice and um, your voice still matters. And I think, yes, for, for so many people in all different intersections of marginalized and oppressed communities, just not having the ability to have their voice heard, have it, their experience affirmed, always being gaslit, right? If you say, this isn't working for me, yes, it is. Or, you know, if you're like, I'm not sure that's the right choice. I know what the right choice for you is. Um, and, and then losing that in a reproductive experience, like you're talking about the spectrum of those experiences is additionally damaging. So I'm curious if you had any thoughts, um, and, and again, our listeners are largely part of the LGBTQ, IA spectrum in birth work, in reproductive health work, which of those areas do you see the most kind of gaps in support or areas of health inequities that kind of come up over and over again? I would say a lot of the time you see people, especially like trans folk having their entire entire like self and identity questioned and fought against in really like violent ways sometimes. Um, I know that that's so that's so common for many people. You also see um, a lack of respect and support for partners um, and especially multiple partners and in the medical community, I feel like, you know, there's so many steps ahead, you know, in terms of science and medical advances, but then they're so far behind in human connection and support and like what that looks like and means specifically for marginalized communities, because it's not one box fits all. And so there's so many people that are trying to be jammed in there that just they need different support and then you have people leaving with trauma and ultimately you know sometimes death which is it's it's so in so many cases like these instances are preventable if there were more educating and knowledge for medical professionals. I can't agree with you more on that. (laughs) That is one of the reasons I'm trying to do research on that right now and kind of put some data behind those experiences. But, you know, it's funny, we've done like one patient survey and we've gotten almost 250 responses. And then like we asked the providers, the physicians to share their knowledge too. Um, And we got like, 15, <laughs> because there's this, even an interest and awareness of knowing what they don't know or being open to being aware of that. Um, 
It's definitely an uphill battle in many ways. But I'm curious for people who might be saying, yeah, this is this is hard for me. I, you know, constantly am feeling like it's a struggle with my provider getting the kind of care and and just support in general for who I am being seen as a whole individual. Do you have any advice or perspectives on how to find providers who might be a good fit for you or how to come out to them? Right. Because that's the other piece, whether it's coming out as polyamorous or coming out as queer, um, having to state that and clarify with that when we're being assumed to be part of a different community or a different experience. Yeah, I mean, I wish that question were easier to answer, but there's so many like levels that we have to consider, which is the fact that medical support alone is a privilege, especially in these communities. And so not everybody can access that at all, let alone remove that person and go to somebody else, especially if they, you know, have maybe they have like a high risk situation where they need a specialist. That's the only doctor around, which in my case, that was the situation. Um, We also have to remember that for everybody, it's not always safe to come out and even if they come out to doctors, doesn't mean that they're okay coming out to everybody on the team or everyone that's going to be attending a birth or attending anything like that. So there's so many levels. Um, I would say community support is often overlooked, but so important. And there's so many groups and it's not always tangible in person in communities, especially, you know, with everything that's going on. Um, but there's a ton of online supports. There's um, Facebook groups, there's Instagram pages, there's um, organizations. And yeah, in the medical community, it's tough. It really is. And I wish that I had a better answer, but there are supports out there. Like you're not alone. And speaking of virtual support, I know that's how we met. We met through Instagram. I don't remember like what was the post or who shared what, but somehow we got connected and I was like, yay, a kindred spirit. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, how did that develop for you? How did you kind of make a home on Instagram and start to build community there? And kind of what have been some of the highs and lows of that? Yeah, Instagram has allowed me to create so many like amazingly beautiful, magical connections and always thankful. (laughs) Um, Social media is a funny thing. I think it's so common to get into like the mindset of having to have perfectly posed whatevers and write the most beautiful captions. Um, And I'm not you know, I, I think I was in that mindset back in the day. Um, but then there came a time where I'm like, there's so many levels to me that I'm hiding. And like, I just need to make my people. And I started blocking a bunch of people um, that I didn't want to see 
my posts that I was going to be posting and I just started being super real and sharing good parts and bad parts. And I built a community um, of people. I've met people that I've been able to help support. I've, you know, like it's been a really beautiful thing, but it also comes with some backlash. Like, not everybody approves of the things that I post or I've had my page leaked to family members, which outed me as being non-binary. And, um, you know, there's always risks to that. But for me, it was just, just being authentic because you don't, I feel like you don't gain anything by building connections that don't feel authentic. Yes, I, I agree with that. And it is, it is so challenging to be our full selves. And I think even when we are really authentic, there's oftentimes things we still have to keep to the side because of, uh, because of familial issues or um, social things going on that, you know, it's not, it's not a time when we're safe to share that. And that's, challenging too plus plus there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like what you're posting like even within your own community right they're like no this is this is not it (laughs) you're like okay well i'm just sharing my experience and my truth um and i know another thing we've we've kind of connected and shared about is both identifying as non-binary and and presenting in what society would often deem as a very feminine way and, you know, seeing us as cisgender. And so I'm, yeah, I'm interested to know, you know, how, how has that evolved for you being able to come out as non-binary, being able to interact with people and say, I know you might see me and put me in one box, but that's not who I am. Um, I I know I came out as non-binary about, three years ago now. And, and it's still, it's an ongoing thing. And, um, and even for myself, like trying to unpack what, what is society put on me that I've embraced because it's easier and what is like my authentic aesthetic. So curious your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, for me, it's been just about a year that I've been out as non-binary for me growing up, I was like, yeah, girl power, womanhood, everything like that. And I realized for me, a lot of it was tied into like having a baby and being a mother. And I identify as a mother. My son calls me mom. Um, but I did a lot of thinking and I'm like, for me anyway being a girl all it had to do with with was society's expectations of me society's expectations of what being a girl looks like and I was always raised you know you don't even need to go to school just marry a rich man and I was I always thought if I was born a boy biologically would I still get that same message? And I really don't think that I would. And I was just like, so much of this is just bullshit to me. Like, and that's just me personally. I would never, you know, tell anybody how to identify. 
But for me, it feels like bullshit. And now that I am a mom, I'm like, that's not necessarily tied into womanhood for me. I didn't give birth to my son because I'm a woman. I gave birth to my son because I'm a powerful person. <laughs> like, um, And I teach my son, you know, not to identify somebody's gender based on what their outward appearance is. And I notice now that he's starting school, how much they push that narrative and how much he's confused by it because he's like, well, boy, like boys can wear dresses. Like, why can't this person be a boy just because they have long hair and a dress and it's a doll? And they like, it's, it's totally, completely not on their radar. And that's just how we were raised. And, and, and to me, it's really frustrating and um, so binary. So, so like compressing people into one or the other and nothing in between. And I just don't get it. <laughs> yes, I, I think it's it is fascinating because on one hand, I feel like, oh, there's so much exposure. There's so much conversation around these things. And then, yeah, children go into these other environments where they're like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> or, or I, you know, we don't have any frame of reference for this. And so you're always kind of going back and forth on, you know, affirming those messages and saying, yes all these things are a spectrum and, you know, and the children possibly hearing very different objective um, voices. I think that parenting in any of these spaces is, is its own challenge and its own, again, coming out right to other parents like at PTA or whatnot. And as much as I'd love to think that most spaces are pretty open and accepting, the reality is many are not. And that people can face not only prejudice and bias, but a lot of violence if they come out as poly, as kinky, as queer, et cetera, um, as disabled. And all of those things are these boxes that are often placed on people to say, you know, oh, we don't know if you can really be a parent. And we see children being taken away by the state, um, parent custody issues, on and on and on. And so it is, it's a really important and serious topic. And I'd love to, you know, hear if you have any thoughts on number one, I think emotional sustainability and resilience when you have to deal with this throughout the entire lifetime of a child or multiple children and always knowing that this is going to be tricky, if not dangerous. Um, and also, like you said, how do you kind of facilitate some of that support so that you know you're not alone in this? You're not the only person going through these things. Yeah, it's actually funny that you bring that up because I just encountered a situation. Um, I live in a small town and I would say a, a lot of people here are quite conservative. And I'm a kind of like... I don't know. I feel like I look a little different. Like I have tattoos, I have like different colored hair, things like that and facial piercings. And so I, 
I think people already look at me and they're like, you're different than everyone here. Um, but I am not out as non-binary to everyone in my life, but I did come out to somebody that I know here and I thought it was okay. I thought like I can trust them. And then they sent me like a very like violently transphobic article. Um, and I won't even get into what it said, but it was very bad. And this was somebody that I considered a, like a close friend. Um, and, you know, my kid plays with their kids and um, I see them all the time and they're in the circle. And, I, and then I'm just thinking everyone probably feels that way. And so now I don't feel safe. And now I'm hiding again and suppressing again. And like, it is so tiring and it's really nice to have like people in an online space. But when you live somewhere and you feel like so othered all the time, and also when you're parenting a child in that, because I don't want my child to be impacted by my othering. And so I'm suppressing again so that my child can have play dates with all the kids. And yeah, I mean, it's really hard. It is really hard. Um, I wish I had like better answers, but yeah, I'm going to the thick of it right now. And trusting people is difficult and feeling safe when you live in like a multiply marginalized body is extremely difficult because even if you go in say for example I enter a queer space that doesn't mean that they're going to be accepting and supporting of my disability right so I'm already limited and now I'm more limited into what I can access and yeah it's very difficult and you know yeah again just even I think us having this conversation and anyone listening hearing a bit of their experience is hopefully somewhat cathartic, somewhat hopeful in that, again, we're not at least alone. Um, even if we physically feel very separated from people who are going through similar journeys. Um, I've spent pretty much my whole life living in very conservative places. And it's always I'm like, I'm supposed to be here because this is where I needed. Um, but at other times I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I just sometimes wish I could walk out the door and know that it's not going to be like some big, interesting story. Um, you know, if I talk about the work that I do or who I am, um, sometimes you just don't want to be, yeah, othered or just even, even if people are trying to celebrate you, be that like unique example, that one person who's blank, um, it gets really exhausting. And I, I know that you touched a little bit on being polyamorous and how has that again, kind of the pros and cons, each side of it kind of um, impacted your parenting experience, impacted your birth work work. And um, and what are some kind of tips that you would share with people who are maybe just considering going towards polyamory? But again, because they have other multiple marginalized identities might have concerns about how that's going to impact them. Yeah, so um, I've been polyamorous now for about six years. And 
um, when I had my son, I was like, nope, I'm done like doing this. This is just like a thing I was doing. It's done now because I'm a mother and I'm going to be a wife. And like that, like, that's not what that looks like. So I stopped and I like ended a relationship abruptly with somebody that I loved very much. And it was very hard. Um, and then, you know, after I kind of settled into my parenting role a little bit and got comfortable, I, I just decided that that was a very big part of me and I missed it and I missed the connections that I had. And, um, it was pretty much no looking back from then. I've just been polyamorous, like outward sense. And I've always kept it very separate from my parenting and um, my child, like I dated solo. I didn't um, have partners meet my child. Um, And recently actually I did connect with somebody and we've been dating for a while and they have kids as well. And so I felt comfortable enough to like integrate our family for a little play date and that was my first time having an experience where I was with my partner and they were with their partner and our kids were there and it was really beautiful and um yeah I think that there are so many lovely amazing polyamorous families out there and some people think that it's like I don't know like dirty or like wrong like you know what I'm saying and kids can understand that thing like it's just it's love it's love it's more love and love is a beautiful thing and kids have beautiful innocent minds and they just see more love and like that's that's what it is to me um and you know in terms of of wanting to you know, think about or pursue polyamory, I would definitely say do research before you jump right in because it takes a a level of communication and respect and patience um, that it it's hard not to get into the pattern of just like automatically wanting to recreate monogamy in the beginning, I think for some people, um, there's some really amazing books out there that cover a variety of different, uh, topics, including, uh, children and, um, some off the top of my head are the ethical slut is a good one. Um, and more than two is another good one. The Ethical Slut's one of my favorite books of all time. So yes, shout out to that book. It's so, it's so positive. I think, you know, even if someone knows for sure they're monogamous, I, I still tell everybody to read it, right? Because it's, it's really about reimagining what you want and what any relationship can look like and not having to fit like a hashtag couple goals <laughs> image on Instagram of happiness or fulfillment, um, being really expansive in our thinking of, yeah, what do people mean to us and what works best for each person and each couple and each group of people? 
So thank you for those resources and, and sharing your story. I know we are close to time. So I wanted to briefly also talk about you, you're doing all this amazing work. You have all these different platforms, um, but I know we've also shared the importance of being able to have sustainable work for ourselves, being able to have boundaries where we can have enough spoons to do the things we love to do. And that you've worked with other people, whether it's in birth work or in other spaces to help them navigate that. Because I think a lot of times when we're passionate about things, it's so easy to just be like, yes to every everything, whatever conditions, I'll make it work. And then we have flare ups and we have all of these other side effects from doing that. So um, any thoughts on creating a sustainable career and life? Literally me applying to a preschool this morning. (laughs) So I should take my own advice here. Um, yeah, definitely getting caught up in the, you know, it's so hard when your mind and heart want to do one thing and your body is like way dragging behind you. Like I can't, you know, like I physically can't. And, um, it's really, really hard not to push yourself. I'm always mindful of like, the spoon theory, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is, um, you have like a set amount of spoons for the day. Each activity you do requires X amount of spoons. And once you've used all those spoons, that's all your body can, can give that day. And so rest is required. Um, I, I have like a toolkit that I put together and I always keep it right beside my bed so that it's like with me and then I can put it in my purse when I leave. It has like topicals, it has my pain meds, it has like compression socks and things like that in it um, so that I can give my body comfort without having to get up and do those things. Um, And also having like a partner that knows your care needs and like regimen and can support you in that um that's another thing about polyamory and i think um sometimes i think you you asked about this which is sorry i don't mean to like backtrack but um sometimes a challenge that people can face um if they're entering polyamory and they have a disability is the idea that your partner who might be your care person could go pursue another relationship and not have the same amount of time to give to you and address your care needs. And I am not saying that that person is responsible for uh, solely providing care needs and that's what their existence is about. Um, but I'm saying that if you have a certain routine that's set up and then, um, they pursue another relationship, sometimes that can be a fear that somebody might face. And so again, like thinking ahead of time and preparing things for yourself so that you can care for yourself when you're in like a flare or something like that, um, 
yeah, I think it's it's important to to kind of plan those things because we don't always know when that drop will happen for me anyway. And when that happens, sometimes I'm not always able to get those things that I need. Yes, I, I that that's a great point. And I think it actually also brought up a bunch of other thoughts for me that I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Um, I think another thing that can often come up if we have a disability and we're polyamorous is the fear of our primary partner finding someone who has better health and can do more things. And even, even like the whole focus of relationships being growing old together, what if they find someone who can actually pretty much be guaranteed to grow old with them and knowing that maybe we can't, we know our lifespan isn't probably going to be as long, right? We're not going to be maybe gray haired on a, in a rocking chair on a front porch and, and the, the heaviness of that and the fear of that, um, yeah, I was curious if you have any thoughts about, again, just kind of navigating a lot of those feelings that can come up in those intersections. Yeah, totally. That is like such a good point. Um, I think everyone has that fear, right? Disabled or not, what if my partner goes and finds someone hotter, richer, bitter, whatever, and everyone has insecurities and everyone loves to be reassured by their partner and I think that just like keeping that open communication and just saying this is how I'm feeling and realizing or being reminded what you bring to the table too that somebody else might not be able to that your partner appreciates about you um yeah I mean I think that uh there's also that harmful thought that, you know, disabled people and, and our partners, like they're a saint for being with us or, you know, we don't contribute enough if we can't provide enough income or, or if we need care or something like that. And people are not inherently lesser than just because they're disabled. And um, yeah, we're, we're sexy and beautiful and, and bring lots to the table and, um, all that good stuff. Absolutely. Yes. So we are at time because this time often flies by and we have so much to cover. Um, I would hope to have you back in the future as well to continue this conversation. But there's always one question that I end on, which is what is the best sex or relationship advice that you've ever received from someone? That's a good one. Hmm. Think about that. Sex doesn't always have to finish with an orgasm. Can you expand on that a little bit? What does that mean to you? I think it's so easy to like get in our heads and feel this pressure that at the end of sex, we have to like have an orgasm and that sometimes it feels like that orgasm is for our partner or partners that we're with at that point. And that's for me. <laughs> and if my body isn't feeling that, like it doesn't mean that the sex wasn't good. It doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy myself. Um, 
just means that it didn't happen. I know that a lot of people, you know, they get in that mindset too, or um, they feel like, for example, like if, if someone can't get hard or something, right. They think they're failing at sex or they can't continue the sex because they can't do something that they maybe had in mind. You know what I mean? So, um, I think sex can be really incredible without necessarily having an orgasm. 100% true. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I know people are like, wow, what a great conversation. How am I going to get in touch with this amazing human being? So Amy, how can people connect with you? Um, so I'm still building my website right now. It's under construction. So the best way to reach me would be through Instagram, which is uh, at rolling through motherhood um, or my email, which is amy at amymillardula.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. And we appreciate all the incredible work you're doing in this world. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Thanks for listening, Curious Queeros. Join us next month for an all new episode. Until then, stay safe, love yourself, and remember to be the change you want to see in the world. Asking for a Friend is a Spectrum South podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Laura McGuire. This podcast is produced by Danny Benoit. Keep up with the latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and at SpectrumSouth.com. For sneak peeks and to submit your questions or suggestions for future guests, follow Spectrum South on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.